0: You're listening to WALT Homegrown Homemade Radio. Hello, Ghost Family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Way back when I first got into podcasting, I wasn't really sure where to start. I knew I wanted to make something, but I wasn't sure what. So one of the first things I tried was just turning on the microphone and reading these little essays I wrote about my brief but harrowing career as a cab driver. At the time I actually wasn't that far removed from my days behind the wheel of a yellow cab, and I was just trying to capture as many of the bizarre and beautiful moments as I could. Maybe, I thought, a podcast would be an interesting way of sharing them. This was about ten years ago, and when I listen back to those essays now, the question that lingers in my mind is, why? Not why as in, why did I record these? But as in, why seems to be the central question I'm exploring in my writing about my taxi experiences. Why did I become a cab driver? Why would I do that to myself? As one of my fellow drivers used to say, hey, the pay sucks, but at least the job's incredibly dangerous. Why wasn't a question that I was consciously asking myself back then, and it's not one I've thought about a lot since. But then, in April of last year, Still the early days of the pandemic, my friend Robin Gelfenbein put together a remote storytelling show. At 7 p.m. one Friday night, in the midst of those dark and confusing times, myself and a few other performers got dressed for the first time in weeks, opened our laptops, squinted into a video chat app, and spent a couple hours telling each other stories. It was a far cry from the crowded theaters and bars where those sorts of shows usually happen, instead of the beer-soaked stage of Branded Saloon here in Brooklyn, my girlfriend Adrian and I sat on an old couch in the guesthouse of a sheep farm where we were quarantined. It was just us and the crickets outside our window, talking at a screen full of floating disembodied heads. It was a weird yet welcome reprieve from the already endless-seeming anxiety and uncertainty. For my story that night, I decided to dip back into my notebooks from the taxi days to see what I could find, and as I was writing out what I wanted to say, something unexpected happened. Nearly 15 years after I dropped off my last passenger, I think I found the answer to my why, at least partly, and sure enough, it has to do with a family ghost." Now, I'm telling you all this here at the top, because after the break, I'm going to play you three pieces without interruption. First, a pair of essays from that first batch of recordings I made 10 years ago, and then my story from that night on the sheep farm when I got my unexpected answer to the question I didn't even realize I was asking. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. We'll be right back. I arrived at Harlem Yellow to find a long, snaking line of misfits and lunatics awaiting the keys to their taxis. C.D. sat behind a pane of bulletproof glass, chain-smoking and laughing as each of us approached. As each driver reached the front of the line, they would offer C.D. some kind of friendly greeting, like, It's a beautiful morning, my brother. Today I will make a lot of money thanks to you. Or, C.D., my friend, thank you for taking care of me. As they said this, they slid their hack license through an opening in the glass, along with two or three dollars, which C.D. would accept without counting. He would pause for a moment, turning the hack license over in his hands and looking through the dirty glass at the prospective driver. Then, prompted by some indeterminable inspiration, he would turn to the computer and type the driver's license number and name quickly. A printer then spat out a run sheet, which C.D. would slide back through the glass with the hack license and the keys to a cab, which the driver would then scamper off to find. At first, I didn't understand why we were expected to tip Seedy, who we were already paying a minimum of $110 to take a taxi out for a 12-hour day shift. It made sense for some of the drivers, who were not even licensed cabbies. Seedy kept a stack of licenses with black men's faces in a stack next to his computer, and to those in the line who were, like Seedy, dark-skinned West Africans, he would, for a somewhat larger tip, rent them a license for the day in addition to the taxi. It made sense when I thought about it. Most passengers only ever really see the back of their driver's head, and the vast majority of them are white, whereas the vast majority of drivers are ethnic minorities. CD and the drivers had correctly gambled that most people wouldn't care enough to notice that the man driving their cab might not be the man it was officially rented to. Not that this did me any good. I was one of four white men in the line of dozens that first morning. The other three were an ancient hunchback with thick black-rimmed glasses, a fanny pack, and a two-foot beard a portly nebbish with a distinctly spooky 10,000-yard stare, and an immense Hungarian with a villainous cackle who wore sweatpants under his button-down dress shirt. All of us waited with the dozens of West Africans, Jamaicans, Haitians, and others, the sounds of various English patois mingling with the beeps and chirps of Pac-Man and the firing of Crown Victoria engines as Sidi doled out the taxis. My taxi that first day, and most of the days I subsequently worked for Harlem Yellow, was number 106 in Sidi's fleet, medallion number 3J93. She needed a fresh coat of paint, and her insides reeked with the sour scent of sweat and vinyl, but she roared to life without incident when I inserted the key, and she glided down Amsterdam to 125th Street as smooth as could be. We would have many adventures together. I was sure of it. Feeling strangely confident for the first time in my still brief taxi-driving career, I decided that today should be the day that I made my triumphant return to the Millennium Hilton to visit my old bellhop friends, leveraging my close relationship with them to funnel airport-bound guests into my backseat in exchange for $3 kickbacks. These were not exactly the circumstances under which I'd fantasized about returning to the Millennium Hilton after quitting the bellhop gig. Rather, I'd had a recurring vision of my cell phone vibrating against my Moleskine journal in my uniform pants pocket. In this vision, upon feeling the buzz of my cell phone, I would slip into the luggage closet to listen to the voicemail, which would be from a powerful talent agent in Los Angeles, informing me that she had viewed my reel and needed me to fly out there at once for a round of television and film auditions, which would serve as my springboard into a long and eclectic acting career. I was encouraged in this fantasy by one of the front desk agents, whose name was Aranthes, and who dreamed of being a producer. Together with he and Clint, another front desk agent and fellow aspiring actor, I co-wrote and shot a comedy pilot for Brooklyn Public Television, which Orenthes had assured us he could get into the hands of the CEO of Palm Pictures. It starred myself, Clint, my friend Garrett, and Orenthes' friend B, and chronicled the adventures of a quartet of mischievous butlers. In Orenthes and My Ultimate Dream Scenario... Once Palm Pictures CEO Chris Blackwell had passed our work along to various influential people in the film community, we would board a first-class flight to Los Angeles, listening to the Phantom Planet song California on repeat until we landed, and then go rent Ocean View apartments with fully stocked closets, so that when we made our inevitably frequent trips back and forth between L.A. and New York, we wouldn't even have to pack a bag. My fellow bellhops were an unexpected source of relentless support in this regard. Rather than laughing off my ambitions as far-fetched, they would not approvingly as I explained my plans, and beseech me not to forget them when I hit it big. The second part of my fantasy was returning to the Hilton one day, having achieved massive film and television successes, and handing out envelopes filled with cash to my former co-workers, so that they would know how faithfully I'd carried the memory of our times together with me. On that first morning in car number 106, however, my return to the lobby of the millennium was decidedly less grandiose, I walked into the lobby in my brown corduroy jacket and looked around for someone I recognized. My old boss, Joe, the concierge, was the only person I could find, and rather than saying hello, I ducked into the bathroom before he saw me, overcome suddenly by an unexpected wave of shame. I had told Joe I was leaving the Hilton to pursue some acting opportunities I felt were too promising to pass up, which was completely untrue. And now... A mere three weeks after giving my notice, I'd come skulking back to finagle airport fares because I was afraid I wouldn't make enough money to cover the lease fees on my taxi. As I came out of the bathroom, I bumped into Jerry and Ray, two of my former bellhop compatriots, who greeted me warmly and assured me they'd find me an airport fare. In fact, no sooner had we exchanged a few of our favorite jokes from the old days, their favorite riff was an extended improvisation on the exploits of a fictional hotel guest named Mr. Nalgas, or in English, Mr. Asscheeks when a woman came hurrying over to us, wheeling her suitcase behind her and requesting transportation to LaGuardia Airport. I was about to oblige when Cynthia, another of the front desk agents, called my name. I assumed she was just saying hello, so I looked up and waved, and I started to follow the woman out to my taxi, rummaging in my pocket for $3 to slip to Jerry after he'd helped her into the cab. But Cynthia was waving me over to her, holding a telephone receiver against her shoulder. I asked the LaGuardia-bound woman to wait a moment and went over to Cynthia, who informed me that there was a call for me, and handed me the receiver. "'Hello?' I said, having no idea whatsoever who would be calling me at the front desk of the Millennium Hilton. "'Hello, Mr. Dingman, this is Crystal at Citibank,' said a clipped voice. "'We've been trying to reach you regarding the outstanding balance on your Platinum Rewards Mastercard. Is this a good time to talk?' "'Um, not exactly?' I replied, glancing over at the woman with the suitcase who was anxiously looking at her watch. Well, Mr. Dingman, we'll need you to remit your minimum payment plus late fees right away, unless, of course, you've already sent it to us, said Crystal. Yep, I just sent it this morning, I said. This also was completely untrue. Oh. Well, in that case, thank you for your payment, Mr. Dingman, and please remember to pay your bill before the due date next time, Crystal replied curtly. Yeah, sorry about that, I said, and hung up the phone just in time to see the woman with the suitcase disappearing through the lobby doors and into another taxi. I wandered back over to the bell stand, where Jerry apologetically informed me that the woman had grown tired of waiting, but assured me they'd find me another fare. I nodded and leaned against the wall next to he and Ray, staring across the lobby and waiting. One afternoon in late January 2007, I heard four incredible songs for the first time. Girlfriend, by Matthew Sweet, Cripple Creek, by the band, Toothbrush and My Table, by Grace Potter and the Nocturnals, and Stuck Between Stations, by The Hold Steady. They were all played on a radio station called WFUV, to which I'd taken to listening with my pen and journal in hand, so that I could pull my cab over to the side of the road if necessary to write down the titles of the songs they played as part of the eclectic mix of music they described as city folk. The last of these songs, Stuck Between Stations, played as the sun was sinking behind the Manhattan skyline that afternoon, a few weeks into my taxi-driving career. I was speeding along the Grand Central Parkway, listening to the radio with the windows open, even though it was still January and the air was bitingly cold. I had just completed my first airport fare— A $36 score to cap off my first decidedly successful shift. Even after I filled the gas tank, paid my lease, and tipped out the guy who collected our keys and run sheets at Harlem Yellow, I was going to clear $150 for the day. An evening of takeout spaghetti and watching The Sopranos lay ahead, and I had the distinct realization that for the first time since August of 2004, I was happy. I graduated from college with an honors degree in theater studies in 2004, and my plan for the future consisted of moving to New York City as quickly as possible. Having attended acting school at Circle in the Square the previous summer, I envisioned a life of nonstop scene study work from plays of great cultural import and long coffees on the Upper West Side with fellow theater artists. I had no plan for how or what to do to realize this vision. I believed simply that I would arrive in the city, rent an apartment, get a job to pay my bills, and then I would act in plays. To this end, I spent the summer in my hometown of Alexandria, Virginia, working as the host for the dinner shift in the restaurant of the King Street Hilton, which specialized in seafood and cigars. It was accordingly named Seagars. Most evenings we sat between two and seven people for dinner over the course of the entire shift, and when I wasn't nodding along awkwardly at the sexist rantings of my aging hunchback Portuguese boss, or the racist ramblings of Danny, the toothless, closeted homosexual waiter, I took advantage of the abysmal business to write poems in my journal while standing at the host podium. Although there were never very many diners in the restaurant, the bar did decent business, despite its lack of taps, happy hour, or drinks priced under $8. In the early hours of my shift, I would watch as the traveling consultants and convention goers who made up the bulk of our guests would drift zombie-like towards the bar in shirt sleeves to order a Sam Adams. They would sit and watch the twin TVs showing CNN and the ball game for a while. And then, after three or four hours, they'd settle up and ride the elevator upstairs by themselves to sleep in our oversized beds with panoramic views of the subway trestle. I think a lot of people view that kind of life as somehow sad or bleak. But I've always found the prospect strangely enticing. I, too, wanted to travel the country in freshly pressed attire— Dutifully attending important functions and then relaxing in the evenings with the familiar comforts of American Ales, baseball, and cable news. Indeed, each night I would leave the hotel at 10 p.m. to return to my mom's house, where I was staying for the summer, and attempt to replicate the experience. After a difficult evening of poetry writing and people watching, I would collapse onto the TV room sofa in a huff, with a tuna fish sandwich and a Sam Adams of my own to watch a few episodes of Six Feet Under. On my nights off, my friends Kit, Alan, and Will would come over for band practice. We were called Spike Your Mind, and we were trying to get a few tunes together to take to a local open mic. I played the drums, and I remember feeling like what was great about the band was that it didn't matter how good we were. It was fun to play Steppenwolf tunes in the basement of your suburban house in the off hours from a job you didn't take that seriously. On August 26th of that year, I packed up the bare essentials into a couple of suitcases and moved to New York with $450 in my pocket. My friend Danielle had graciously offered to let me sleep on her floor for two weeks while I looked for an apartment and a job, both of which I ultimately found. And soon enough, my life looked enough like it had that summer in Virginia that I should have been just as happy as I'd been in my mom's basement, working in a hotel by day and replacing Spike Your Mind with an independent comedy magazine I was working on with my friends over Bud Lights and Cheesecake at Michael's Restaurant on Broadway in Astoria. But I wasn't happy. And looking back, it's easy to see why. My life in New York had been an alluring fantasy that summer, an artistic fairy tale riddled with nebulous details. The only aspects I chose to specifically envision in my mind were the ones that involved writing poems in coffee shops and thumbing through play scripts with a pen behind my ear. I couldn't have foreseen the realities of the oppressive financial strain imposed by my roach-ridden two-bedroom apartment, the maddening foolishness of trying to get a talent agent, and the unfathomable insanity and lack of organization that characterizes most denizens of New York's independent theater scene. Soon enough, my work at the hotel was no longer an intriguing way to earn some money, it was the only way to keep the lights on. Whereas I'd spent the summer feeling like I was sailing towards a harbor, I now felt like I was drowning in a lagoon. And then, two and a half years later, that bitter January afternoon in the driver's seat of my taxi, the old feeling came back, suddenly and without warning. Manhattan lay in repose like the seductress she'd once been across the glimmering Hudson, as stuck between stations came over the radio. All at once it was like I was back in the basement again, hurtling towards my destiny with a full day's work behind me. Only it was more than that this time. I'd worked twelve hours at a job riddled with danger and frustration. New York City buzzes along at its breakneck pace thanks to its buses, subways, and taxicabs, and one of those taxicabs had been expertly piloted by me having flawlessly ferried 18 passengers all across the five boroughs. Along the way, I'd jotted notes in my journal as the radio offered up its inspirations. Already I was plotting a future solo show about my cab driving experience. and I'd swallowed coffee with the solemn resolve I had so often observed in other drivers. I felt like the real thing. I'd woken up that day with a difficult job to do, and now I had done that job well. To the absolute best of my ability, in fact. And what's more... I'd helped some strangers along their way in the process. There was nothing left to be done but to rest up and reward myself with the modest luxuries I could afford in preparation for another day in the city of endless possibilities. I felt that feeling that I've always imagined the patrons of the bar at Seagars felt on those quiet summer evenings in 2004. A kind of earned release. As I sit writing these words nearly five years later, I cannot think of any other moment since that beguiling summer of 2004 when i felt that way. Cab driving would end up nearly killing me. But every day brought fresh challenges that very few other people on earth encounter in their daily lives. In my subsequent life behind a desk, I've traded that for the comfort and ease of a guaranteed paycheck and reasonable hours, but have watched as one creative effort after another has sputtered and died owing to the fact that the work hours that my stability demands require me to sneak my passion into the cracks of my existence. Taxi driving may not have been my dream, but while I was doing it, I couldn't deny that I was accomplishing something real and difficult on a daily basis. By contrast, my most recent task at my current job was to reserve several lanes at a local bowling alley so that my boss's team of software engineers can celebrate a product launch. My role is basically to handle the bothersome logistics that his schedule prevents him from dealing with, allowing him to focus on the effective creation of web ads that are forcibly inserted into people's email. I received a call yesterday morning from the bowling alley. Evidently, the company card was declined for the several-thousand-dollar authorization. I assured the woman on the phone that I would get right on it. But instead, I hung up the phone, grabbed my notebook, and ducked into an empty conference room to write this installment of my podcast which I'm now recording in my living room at 3 o'clock a.m., because I'm still stuck between stations. Woo! Hello, Yay! everybody. Um... Well, uh, I guess I've already tipped a little bit um, the territory that my story's gonna get into, but uh, here we go. So, a few years ago, I was working as a cab driver in New York City. And this one day, I'm driving down 2nd Avenue, and I'm right around 36th Street, and I see this guy standing on the corner with his hand in the air, trying to hail a cab. And he's got matted, greasy, blonde hair, he's wearing pants that have big holes in the knees, and he's wearing like two-fifths of a tank top. Now, there is unfortunately sort of an unspoken rule in being a good cab driver, which is what drivers refer to as passenger judgment. And it is generally frowned upon to pick somebody up who looks like they're an extra from The Walking Dead. Um, However, Uh, I did not say that I was a good cab driver. (laughs) So I pulled over and I picked this guy up. And he gets into the cab. The cab is instantly filled with the smells of sweat and fortified wine. And he leans forward. So his head is right through the partition between the back seat and the front seat. And so his head is basically right over my shoulder like he's a parrot. Um, (laughs) And he says, and now I am going to be... Uh, imitating this man's voice throughout this story, and you may hear the imitation and think that it's an exaggeration. All I can tell you is it isn't. Um, He says, I need to go to Williamsburg, bro, and I don't have a lot of cash. Now, given the fact that he is perched on my shoulder like a parrot, um, as he says this, I also notice that he only has four teeth. (gasps) Now, based on all the factors that I've told you about so far, I surmised that this guy's tooth-to-dollars ratio (laughs) probably about one-to-one at best. (laughs) Now, you might be asking yourself, Sam, why did you pick up this vagrant? Um, Were you perhaps uh, trying to do your social duty um, and help the less fortunate among us get from point A to point B? No. I was trying, believe it or not, to feel Jewish. I will explain. So Judaism, as you may have surmised by some of my remarks uh, on this evening's broadcast, was not a huge part of our household growing up. My mom's family is Jewish, but we did not go to temple, we did not celebrate Passover, we did not keep kosher... My mom sometimes liked to lean into some of the cultural aspects of Judaism. For example, we would make chopped liver every Thanksgiving. And um, one time I told her that I wanted to get a tattoo of a penguin. (laughs) And she told me that that was tantamount to being branded by the Nazis in the concentration camps. Oh, my God. (laughs) So that was about it. The main connection that I ever actually really felt with Judaism was when her brother, my Uncle Charles, would come to visit. Now, my brother and I uh, loved when Uncle Charles would come to visit. We called him Uncle Lucky. And the reason we did that is because he would come into town, and he would put us in his rental car, and he would take us to 7-Eleven and buy us each one candy bar and let us watch him scratch off lottery tickets and (laughs) chain smoke, (laughs) which is why we called him Uncle Lucky. And he would be in town because he was there to sell jewelry. He was in the jewelry business. And he had taken over my great-grandfather Saul's jewelry business. And Saul had come to this country um, with $15 in his pocket and he had gotten a job selling oranges by the side of the road. And at some point somebody said to him that the only place that Jews were safe and welcome to work was the Diamond District on 47th Street in Manhattan. And so he had gone there and he'd worked his way up and he had gotten his own storefront. And this was um, a huge deal for him. And he had passed the business on to my uncle, Uncle Lucky. And so Uncle Lucky would come and he would spill out on the kitchen table when we got back from 7-Eleven, this incredible array of brooches and bracelets and necklaces and rings. And he would tell us stories. Um, One of the stories he told us, was from his youth, um, which was that he had started this, he called it a social club. Um, I think gang of punks is probably a more accurate definition. Um, He remembered that this group called themselves TSB. He could not remember if that stood for tough shit baby or tiny scumbags. Um, And then he would also tell us stories about our great grandfather, Saul, who had started the jewelry business. And the story that always stuck with me is this parable that according to Saul used to go around the diamond district, which is that the the Jewish gemologists in Africa would sneak diamonds out of the mines for themselves by hiding them in the treads of the tires on the the vehicles that would drive the shipments out away from the mines. And that in a way, this was the story of the Jews themselves. Um, They moved through the world and, and, kept their values close um, against the preferences and wishes of everybody around them. They were vital, they were ever-present, but they were mostly unseen. And I always found that story really, really powerful. And as a kid growing up who didn't really feel like he fit in, the liminality of that existence, the kind of existing between two worlds, the idea that you could have an identity in doing that was really powerful to me. And that's what ended up drawing me to being a cab driver. Um, It's what made me feel like it was maybe a way that I could capture a little bit of Uncle Lucky's cool. And that's really what made me pick up this guy who uh, looked like an extra from The Walking Dead who was standing on the street corner that day. So that day we're driving down 2nd Avenue and we go by a police station, uh, which is a normal thing to do in the course of driving down 2nd Avenue where there is in fact a police station. But as we're going by, this gentleman uh, reperches on my shoulder, parrot style. And he says, no cops, bro, we can't go past no cops. And I said, why? And he said, dude, it wasn't my shit. I was on the bench, but I didn't have my ID. Now, I did not know what that meant. (laughs) But whatever this gentleman had done on that bench with that shit and this lack of identification had apparently incurred the wrath of the police. So, I said to him, no problem, we'll go a different way. And what I was intending to convey in this moment is, you and me, we're not so different between two worlds, am I right? That is not the message he received from me in this moment, or at least I don't think it is, because he said, Good motherfucker, cause I got a knife. Mm. Which he then proved to me by brandishing it through the partition. Okay. So I was very afraid. I veered off of Second Avenue. And I don't know how well all of our viewers know New York City geography, but had I stayed on 2nd Avenue, it would have been very easy for me to get on the Williamsburg Bridge, which is so named because it goes directly to Williamsburg, (laughs) this man's ostensible destination. Because we were not permitted to do that due to the bench and identification situation, I instead had to drive all the way south to the bottom of the island, loop back up again, and then go across the bridge to avoid the police station which meant that the fare went up really, really high. But again, there was a very low likelihood that this guy was going to be able to pay it before he pulled the knife. Mm -hmm. So as I'm going on this um, unplanned jaunt, I'm thinking back on Uncle Lucky, and I'm realizing that I've spent a lot of time thinking about that first part of the Uncle Lucky story and how it made me feel connected to my Judaism. But I have not given nearly enough thought to the second half, which is that the last time he came to visit, he came to our house, there was no trip to 7-Eleven. There were no lottery tickets. He said a cursory hello to my brother and me, and he said, I need to talk to your parents about some money stuff. My brother and I were sent to bed. We later found out that Uncle Lucky had borrowed a my mom's entire life savings. Oh my God. And when I say borrowed, that was the word that he used. What he actually did was to steal it because we didn't see him for 15 years after that. And so as I finally made it to Williamsburg, oh I was reflecting on this and I pulled up to this corner because The guy in the backseat said, Stop here. So I pulled over, and he leans through one more time, and he says, You did okay, bro. And then he gave me six greasy dollar bills. So exceeds expectations on the performance report. And then he breathed really, really heavily on my neck. And he got out of the cab and he walked off into the distance. And I sat there and I looked at these crumpled bills and I thought about how many of these near-death experiences I had had as a cab driver. And I realized that I did not still really know what it meant to be Jewish, but I don't think it was supposed to feel like this. I didn't feel like a diamond between the treads of a tire. I felt really small and I felt really afraid. I felt like a tiny scumbag. Thank you. Yay! Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Louis Guerra. Thanks to Robin Gelfenbein for inviting me to tell that last story as part of her virtual edition of Yum's The Word, her long-running live storytelling show based here in New York. This episode was made possible thanks to the generous support of The Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits hear all of our episodes ad-free, and they get exclusive bonus content. This week, they're hearing a bonus taxi story. If you have the means, please consider joining the Kindred Spirits today at patreon.com slash familyghosts. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.